Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. Welcome to Weird Ways of Making You Talk uh, USA with me, Al Murray, James Holland, and of course, John McManus, tolerating our inane, limey banter. <laughs> uh, blimey. Um, how are you, John? Uh, doing great. Uh, no complaints. Have you caught any of Masters of the Air yet? Have you seen any? Oh, yeah. I've seen all three episodes, and oh, my gosh. What are you making I, of I, it? I, I'm really enthralled. I, I love it. I mean, I, I think the book is just brilliant, and and it's sort of manifesting on screen the way I hoped. I decided. Have you guys seen it? I've seen the first three. Yeah, I think it's amazing. Yeah. I, so I, well I, done. I think so well done. I thought the the Schweinfeld raid was Regensburg raid. Oh, was just... God, yeah. Well, and it was it was accurate. It was it, it wasn't cartoonish in the sense of oh everything's slaughtered or whatever. Some people are okay. Other people are completely in the box here and getting nailed and, and they, they had the numbers right and it's really well done yeah it's really really well done and captures that the, the way they told the story of well if this plan works it'll then it then it'll work and if it doesn't we're we're done for and uh, I, I just thought yeah. yeah we're really in trouble i thought that was uh, uh, excellently done and also the you know when you the idea of flying to africa as some sort of solution to the problem as well is completely bananas i mean you do wonder if they if they turned around and gone back to the uk whether that would have taken some of the pressure off the f- fighter response that the second wave then had to deal with. But anyway, I mean, I, I th- it looks amazing as well. The scenes where the fortress is fl- falling apart and then flying through it is absolutely incredible. Anyway. It doesn't look fake CGI-ish. No, no, no. The, the other thing that was, was amazing was that shot of them going across the Alps and, um, you know, the contrails, the mountains, the clouds. I mean, it was just absolutely stunning. Oh, the contrails are dead on. Dead on. And, and um, you know, J- John Orloff – friend of the show who, who wrote it he, you know he made the point you need to see it on as big a screen as possible because there's so much going on in every single frame i mean it is just not one for the ipad although actually i'm gonna have a i'm gonna watch it again that that third episode because there's so much to look at i want i do want to have another another go at it i i, I think it's absolutely amazing i mean i've got to say john over here in the uk it's had amazing reviews i mean literally five star across the board you know tv reviewers are known for their cynicism but we're, I mean, we're not, this isn't a TV review show though. We're here to talk about something, Jim, that you, you want to get off your chest. And I found a quote that I think goes with it really, really well. 
they do not understand the problems and do not not know what I am talking about. Oh yes, is that Major General Fred Walker, Manny Chance? <laughs> it certainly is. They do not understand the problems and do not know what I am talking about. So what are we? What are we talking about? What are the problems, Jim? Well, we're talking about thirty sixth Texan Division, the Tea Patches um, crossing of the River Rapido, which is actually the Garigliano. Um, just south of Casino on the 20th and 21st of January 1944. And and this is a very, very controversial moment, not particularly so at the time, but becomes so later on because it actually begets a congressional hearing because the Texans complain after the war. And Clark is General Mark Clark, the commander of the Fifth Army, we may have mentioned before on this show. And <laughs> I don't think we've heard about him at all, nor Alexander. I, I don't know what... These mystery men of the Second World War, John, I don't know. And... You know, they basically accuse him of cocking it all up and it's all his fault. And it's completely dismissed. And it's absolutely, you know, it's, it's ludicrous that, that it's the army commanders to take the blame for a river crossing that doesn't go entirely according to plan. And but, but anyway, the narrative of it is very much that Walker was wrong, that he was sent to do Mission Impossible, that he, he should never, they should never have done it, that, that they should never have ordered the Texans to go across this in this suicidal way and blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of, you know, that's when you when you read books about this narrative, you know, secondary sources, which admittedly I haven't read for a long time. But, but you know, 10, 10 12 years ago, I was re- reading a lot about this. That was the narrative, you know, that Fred Walker, the commander of the uh, 36th, was very much the wronged man and that all those guys that were killed in the process were kind of lambs to slaughter and all the rest of it. But anyway, I've been going over this in forensic detail. And I've got a slightly different view, which is probably not really surprising. But Oh, yeah. But, but I'm not sure that... I mean, it was a tough gig. There's absolutely no question about that. But the problem I've got is that Fred Walker... Okay, so, so he, is, he is given kind of specific orders that his division is going to be doing this on the 16th of January, so four days before. However, it has been... At, it, they all know from the beginning of December that they're going to. This is the plan: is to cross the uh, Rapido because this is part of an earlier plan. And Clark and Jeffrey Keyes, who is the two corps commanders, so one up from from Walker, have intimated very, very strongly that it's going to be the Texans that do this. So Walker knows from the beginning of January that it is almost certainly going to be the the Texans that are going to cross the Rapido, and so starts giving this very, very, very careful thought. And on the 8th of January, he writes in his in his his diary, I, I've been giving this lots of thought and I've come to the conclusion that it's not possible. You know, this is always sort of, you know, seen as his foresight and that even then he knew that this was an impossible mission and all the rest of it. But I was looking at this and I was thinking, hang on a minute, but he doesn't know what the other plan is. <laughs> and he doesn't know what assets he's got. And he has no idea what artillery support he's going to be given. He doesn't know what extra troops he's going to be given. He doesn't know that this is going to be third off the rack of a whole load of other operations, not least British 10 Corps in the south over the Garriano, and then a second operation from the British 46th Division. He doesn't know that the French are going to be kind of kicking off in the northern north of Casino. He doesn't. He has no idea at this point what troops are going to be opposite him because the Germans don't know what troops are going to be opposite him on the 8th of January. You know, they, they've got a whole load of troops there and they've pulled them out of the line and then put them back again. Um, but he doesn't know that. So how on earth can he say that? And then you get into the kind of nitty gritty of it. And, and you, you can see that he working himself up into a lather 
So he says to to Clark and to Keys, look, wh- why don't we why don't we attack across the Rapido north of Casino in that kind of valley where you drop down from the sort of Monte Mayo massive? Then you've got a, like a it's like a, a mile and a half cross the little Rapido going over. It's a bit more affordable there. And then, of course, you've got the Monte Cassino massive, like this wall of mountains rising up to Monte Caro, which is sort of 6,000 foot high. And they go, that's not really going to work because you're not going to get through the, through the Gustav line there. You might be able to get across the, the Rapido at that point, but you won't be able to get across the Gustav line because you've got a whopping great mountain. The whole point is to get into the Liri Valley, and this is coordinated with a whole load of other operations that are going to take place. And the reason we're going to do it when we're going to do it is because we're also going to be mounting an amphibious operation at Anzio, and we want to draw off troops. So that's a complete no-no. I mean, it's a total non-starter. And when he does get his orders, he gets a really hefty amount of, of artillery, something like 15 field battalions of just field artillery. Then on top of that kind of tank destroyer battalion, then three battalions of, of Sherman tanks, plus an anti-aircraft battalion, which can be used in a kind of ground attack role, sort of you know horizontal role, plus two extra battalions of engineers from 5th Army, plus engineers from 1st Armoured Division, which are also in the area. So his 16,000-strong infantry division has suddenly swollen to about kind of 20,000-plus with all those extra elements. And it's coming on the end of quite a lot of, a lot of other operations. And he says in his kind of post-war notes, he says, that, you know, and I looked at this and I, I thought to myself, I wrapped my brains and I thought, you know, I can't think of a single instant in history where... An attacking force has had to cross an unfordable river along the enemy's main line of resistance. And you think, well, I mean, I would say... Uh, what's wrong with the Volturno, well. to start off with? <laughs> exactly. And the Biferno, and the Sangro, and the Moro, and frankly, the Garigliano two days earlier. I mean, and the, what, what's, and what's he saying? And plenty times for the Germans on the Eastern Front, and, and or on the Western Front, or I mean, who knows what else. So I, I, he didn't really study history very carefully. And you think about it, Jim, what do you have, like 400 tubes or something like that in support? The U.S. Army in particular, I mean, all we do is river crossings in the course of the European campaign. And the Volturno really is sort of the best comparison because it's just a couple months earlier um, and in Italy, uh, but done by the third ID primarily. And uh, so, yeah, it really is interesting what, how you brought this up because there's always been this kind of standard thought of how this was just kind of hopeless. But when you look at it from this light and you compare it maybe to other operations, it isn't, doesn't look that different. Than later and previous river crossings. You know what I mean? That That's what kind of gets me. So he says, I discussed the problem with my staff and my subordinate commanders. How is infantry confined to four narrow crossing sites because of insufficient crossing equipment to survive disorganization and casualties in advance to and capture the main line of resistance during darkness or soon after daylight? For there could be no success until the German line of strong points was in our possession. How can assault troops build up a fighting formation by infiltration in the dark over unfamiliar ground with no landmarks to establish location and direction after crossing the river under fire? How can troop leaders exercise proper control under such conditions? How can artillery support such a manoeuvre when it can put down no observed fires during the night but must resort to map firing? How can the German defenders be kept down within their defences when restricted ammunition supplies limit preparatory bombardment to only 30 minutes? It's like, this uh, is absolutely bonkers. I mean, well, this is the real, it's my first day stuff. This, isn't it? It <laughs> is. You know, all he had to do, he's saying, how can, all he had to do was study two months earlier what the third idea had done at the Volturno. 
I mean, right. Uh, so to, to learn the answers to some of those questions. Well, and the other I, thing, you know, Jim, you mentioned earlier the anti-aircraft units. Those are really powerful ground support units. Those are quad fifties that can be oriented downward for direct fire support. I mean, that that is very effective in the course of yes. this war, much less the artillery. When I ask you this question, were they used in the battle? What do you think the answer is going to be? Well, then they weren't, and that, they that's weren't. part of the problem. Were, were those three tank battalions used in the battle? They're not used to any great extent, and they're, they're not used part of the problem, at too. All. At yeah, all. At exactly. all. Exactly. So, so the other thing, I mean... It gets and it gets worse. So, so I would answer to all those questions. I would say to, to to Fred Walker, I would say, night operations is kind of standard, and you can always see light, and there is always light because of flashes and fire and flares, and moonlight and and a whole host of other reasons you can always see. Um, and the other thing I would say is three thirty minutes preliminary bombardment, but you've been bombing the shit out of these guys for a week. Yeah, and you know, and I've got German accounts saying we spent literally twenty four hours, you know, seven days a week in our bunker, cowering with our helmets on because we were being shelled the whole time. And the thirty minutes thing suggests that is suggestive that all they're getting is thirty minutes of artillery, which is not the case. They're getting creeping barrages going back, 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 back the whole time. So the the first lot of barrages, thirty minutes is on the forward positions of the Germans, and then back and back and back, and. It's not like, you know, the whole kind of sort of the other accusation is, you know, they only have four days, they didn't have time time to kind of prepare properly. Well, again, that's not true because Walker had three weeks to do it effectively because he knew it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And they were doing active patrol work and they were skipping across the river every single night and discovering, you know, where all the positions were. So they knew where the positions are. So how can artillery hit targets when they can't see them at night? Well, A, you can because you see where, where explosions land. B, you fire on preset positions which you've worked out beforehand by looking at the map and looking at aerial photographs and you don't you don't need to actually see it and the whole point about far is it's indirect anyway well here's what stands out to me as far as the larger tendency walker in this sense is more symptomatic of a, a mindset that is there for the u.s army uh really the u.s ground forces in this war all the way through until the night vision era i would argue that there's a tendency to fight a nine to five kind of war of saying, well, we don't really do night operations. That's not, we, we hunker down at night into holes and we shoot at anything that moves is the tendency. And when you're talking about river crossings, it makes the most sense to do that at night. And, you know, of course, there's outliers. It had happened like at the Volturno uh, and it's going to happen later at the Murth River. I mean, we could go into tons of examples. But, but, but John, also, the other thing is that, you know, from a bridging point of view, this is technically, it's a lot easier because... The Garigliano, where, where let's say, 5th Division have just crossed two nights earlier, is about 45 yards wide. You know, here it's maybe 10, you know, maybe 8 yards wide, something like that. I mean, you know, it's, 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 not, it's not wide at all. So from, a, from, a, you know, from that sort of Meccano work of, of a Bailey Bridge, it's, it's, it's a comparative cinch. The other thing is, why doesn't Walker go and talk to McCreary and, you know, Gregson Ellis and, you know, Douglas Graham, who are the other, other commanders, and go... Give me your thoughts. I mean, there's no there's no evidence of him doing that whatsoever. Uh, and, and you know, the Garigliano. I mean, you, you know, if, if you ever go down there, what you're seeing is a huge floodplain either side. That, that you know, the infantry got to advance up to through a hell of a lot of mines, and then they've got to get across this 45 yard, you know, 50 yard river. Then they've got a quite a long stretch, you know, of a kind of a mile or so to to the to the hills on the other side, 
well, certainly in the fifth division area, less so in the in the in the fifty sixth division area. But you know, the Germans are looking down the whole time, and they, and they are getting shelled and and really badly mashed up. I mean, it, it's it's a horror story, but they get across, and they've got rafts and stuff, and and I don't know. I mean, then you kind of look at the kind of detail of it, and you look at the crossing points. So the mines running up to the so, so the, the river sort of zigzags down from casino across the whole of this leary valley and the leary valley is about kind of five miles wide running kind of at this point kind of north to south and and the, and the the rapido river that they've got across it sort of ziggles 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 all the way down and about halfway down is this little village perched on a sort of low bluff of you know maybe kind of 20 foot high called sandangelo in theodici mm-hmm. and, and that's a kind of sort of halfway point and running parallel on the eastern side of the river is this road, this sort of lateral road, which follows the kind of course of the river southwards. Between that and the and the river is a kind of floodplain. So the road is slightly raised, and behind it, then the the ground starts to climb again a little bit. But but there's a floodplain there. Then there is a great big fat dike, kind of on the side of the river between the river edge and the river bank and the and the floodplain. And it is that bit that is mined. And that's the bit they've got to clear. And when they when they move down to the river with their boats to get across the river, they've got to get through this minefield. But obviously the sappers have been in, the engineers have been in and cleared these paths the nights before. But obviously it makes sense to put your crossing points where the road is closest to the floodplain, i.e. where the floodplain is at its narrowest which the 143rd Infantry, which are attacking in two places to the south of Sant'Angelo, do. But the 141st Infantry to the north absolutely do not. They do it at literally the worst point you could possibly cross is where they cross. Too close to Sant'Angelo, so they can be seen from Sant'Angelo and, you know, snipers and OPs and stuff in, in Sant'Angelo can look down on it. But also, it's literally about a kilometre, you know, what's that, two-thirds of a mile from the road to the river so they've got to walk this you know and that's obviously a harder job for them for the for the engineers to clean the mines they've also got to you know there's more room for cock up isn't that the big the bigger the minefield the, the more room there is for cock up and of course it's a total cock up because they get there to their boats find some of them being smashed then they've got to reallocate who's going in what boat then they get across the engineers who are leading them across it's dark because there's a fog over the there's a sort of river mist over the no one can see everything so they get lost then they realize they've got to turn around again so they then turn around that causes lots of noise and crashing and clanking of banging into one another the germans get wind of it start shelling them and it all goes pear-shaped well i wonder i mean these guys had been through the nightmare of san pietro yeah what, about a month or so before I wonder if that's diminished their capability somewhat, uh, or maybe their, their aggressiveness on the part of their commanders. I, I don't know. That's I've always wondered that. What do you think? Well, I do, because I think what's happened is they've suddenly got a lot, a lot of replacements in who are suddenly new boys. And actually, I don't think they're as well trained. But Walker's heart's not in it either. Because who is Walker? How, you know, I mean, he's old, isn't he? He's 56. So he's older than older than most of his peer group, isn't he? He's not very well, as I understand it. He's been around the block he's i mean he's probably thinking why am i only a divisional commander when people who are young you know much younger than me clark's much younger than him 10 years his heart's not in it he he regards the italian campaign as one mountain mass after another doesn't he like it's you know is there not a way around doing this and he's, his heart 
it's it's very very simple his heart's not in it and it's it's interesting isn't it because you say okay so they've got lots of replacements well that's his responsibility to make sure that they're therefore ready up to the job and well trained enough and and on the ball so you can't lay it on the replacements you can't lay it on the fact that maybe the division's a bit windy after San Pietro and all that sort of stuff who's it where does the buck stop and it stops with with Walker doesn't it surely yeah well this is this is this is my point because I think I think divisional commanders have a really you know a vital role you know they offer leadership and command and they 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 create a mood you know if the gung-ho aggressive divisional commander has a gung-ho aggressive division you know the cautious one has a cautious division the spick and span man wants all his men to be wearing ties and you know boot polish the casual one like 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 terry de la Mesa allen doesn't care you know so the culture and the mood and everything comes down from the top and it filters down like osmosis doesn't it oh and the classic example again i keep making this point but the classic example is the third id at the volturno that's under truscott and really doesn't even have as much support as everything you've just outlined for this operation and maybe this is a tougher operation, granted, but still, uh, the, the culture of these two units couldn't be any different based on the commander. And they're both good units, don't get me wrong, but Walker does, Al, I think you're right, Walker does set that tone, which of course his regimental commanders are going to pick up on his staff quite meaningfully too, I think, on a lot of levels, and does see forward in, in a way that I think doesn't work out well in this instance. And Truscott's just cut from a different cloth. Well, I, I think the trouble is, is once you... So I, I've just put a line that I wrote this morning. I put, Walker had been thinking about this operation for the best part of three weeks, yet rather than trying to work out solutions, he'd allowed himself to find only further reasons why the mission was surely doomed. And I think the problem is, is, is once you think it's all going to go pear-shaped, that's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? It can be. I mean, there, there are other times when you go through with it because you believe in it, but you realize the problems. Another example I'd say is the two U.S. Airborne divisions in Normandy. You know, Lee Mallory has his concerns, and of course all of this goes before uh, Taylor and Ridgeway. And they, you know, they understand what Lee Mallory is saying. Hey, you know, we can get decimated going into the Coats on 10, but we believe in this mission, and it has to be done, and Utah Beach is untenable without us. Walker maybe just doesn't have that same orientation here, thinking... This is the key to what we're doing in Italy this month in January 44 with what happens at Anzio and here in Slipping Past Casino, all of that. Maybe he just doesn't quite see it that way. He's thinking it's just another mountain ridge to come where the Germans are dug in and it's push, 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 and that's it. That You know, we'll do this this week and then we'll have to do it again in another fortnight. And, and just as he sends culture down, maybe the culture's come back up from San Pietro to him and he's thinking... This is too difficult. I, I, I'm finding this. I'm finding this hard because my, my men are finding it hard and all that. You know, it's um because that is a two way street after all. But he's in. Ch- it's his responsibility to do something about it. Well, it is, and I, th- I think the problem is that once you start harboring these things, you just say all I can see is a kind of brick wall of of impossibility. You know, that starts to prey on your mind. It's it starts to cloud judgment. It it stops you from kind of seeing the wood from the trees, and suddenly. What is always going to be a very, very tough situation, you're making tougher by not actually just taking a deep breath and figuring through this comedy. I mean, why aren't they using the anti-aircraft battalion in a, in, in an, yeah. you know, in a ground attack role? Why aren't those tanks 
there. You know, the tanks are back at Mignano. What the heck? They're not even close. It's not like they're kind of loitering in a, in a you know, just around the corner waiting to be caught. They are nowhere near it. And they're Get saying, why aren't we up there? We should be used. And, and that's got to come down on Walker's watch, surely. Yeah. It's really interesting because you've kind of flipped conventional wisdom on its head in a way because Walker has been seen as kind of a soothsayer. Uh, of, of anticipating this disaster that's going to happen that we lay at the feet of higher, I guess, in posterity, certainly Clark and all that. Clark, you know, the, the Texans certainly blame Clark and, and all that, regardless of the truth. You know, there was the congressional inquiry, like you said, and it was often said that Clark couldn't go to Texas and all this. But Sorry, I mean, but, it, but isn't also a lot of that? I mean, isn't that, that why kind of when, when police round people up, they, they never put witnesses together? Because suddenly you, you sort of go, I know, yeah, you that's get, the point. Yeah, yeah, it's all his fault. Oh, yeah. Well, and you want to make sure you're getting the same story when people are separated. Yeah. Right. What does your yeah, GI know about higher command? I mean. Well, and I think the, the point you make about the level of support is the strongest point here. Um, there's a lot of support for the 36th Division going across this river uh, that we could compare with other river crossings quite favorably, I think. And you're right. I mean, the division commander really is responsible for this particular battle. The army commander is operating at a much higher level and, of course, dealing with Anzio, too, which is part of this whole larger kind of symphony that's happening. Um, So Walker's part really is confined to what ends up as the worst fiasco here. Um, So and of course, it's in his interest maybe to spin it. But if we're being kind to him. You know, maybe he, maybe this is just how he sees it. Maybe he's not conniving or anything. Maybe he's just saying, uh, this mission was just too much. Um, I don't know how we could pull it off. And he was naturally going to sort of blame that on hire because that's what you do in a military setting. Uh, they don't understand at higher headquarters. Those, the, those knuckleheads at core, those knuckleheads at division, those knuckleheads at regiment, you know, all the way down the line. Yeah. That is the tendency, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. But to flip it. What are the Germans getting right? You know, um, because previously they've been unable to stop the Allies at river crossings and stuff. So what are they getting? What are they getting right? What are, are the Germans doing something different that's thwarting and bamboozling the Americans in this inst- instance, or is it? Yeah, well, is it? well, they've got they've got they've got the huge benefit of having Monte Cassino hovering over the whole thing with observers on top directing fire. Um, they've also got um, you know they've got fire in depth there. You know, so they've got a lot of guns. They got a, you, you, so you've got outposts of MG posts and mortars. Um, first of all, you've got wire entanglements and mines on the other side as well. Then you've got got MGs, um, MGs and mortars. Then you've got kind of bigger mortars, and you've got Nebelwerfers, which of course mortars as well. Then you've got your artillery, and the Germans know that the Americans are are coming because they've seen them preparing for it. I mean, you know, the American Texas Division hasn't been terribly subtle about what they're doing. Well, they know they have to have that, too. They have to have that crossing. They're not going to go straight into Casino, like you said. Not yet. <laughs> Across a river. <laughs> they kind yeah. of know what's coming. So they, they've packed it with, you know, probably the best division in, in, in the area, which is the 15th Panzer Grenadier and our old friends from Sicily. And behind that is another division, the 44th. You know, and they can bring a lot of fire down there. But 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 I, whatever, whatever fire the 15th and other German units in the area can bring to bear, it's as nothing compared to what the Americans can bring to bear on, on the Germans. The difference, of course, is that they're in their bunkers and trenches and the Americans are having to sort of get up and expose themselves and, and cross open ground. And that, that's the difficulty of it. But but it's not just the the, the, the point I'm trying to make is, is the, the, the fiasco is 
because of the confusion, because of the kind of sort of, you know, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, because of a whole host of things, which, you know, I would argue could have been avoided. And then don't have enough suppressive fire in the immediate kind of battle zone in the front. If you've got tanks hammering away with 75 millimeter rounds and machine guns and two machine guns and doing that suppressive fire, then that would keep a lot of the Germans quiet. And that would be a massive enabler to the attacking infantry. Well, and that, that's part of the, the quality of a, of a commander that we tend to overlook, I think, is whether he's able to bring to bear all the assets he has at his disposal, which is not always easy to do logistically and transportation-wise to get the tanks where they need to be at the exact time, to coordinate the artillery, to get the key fire support that you need when you need it right on site. This takes a lot of skill, you know, and, and especially in a night operation like this, and you're talking about a kind of funneling kind of battle here where, you know, it's a pretty small area we're talking about where, where these guys are actually crossing and fighting. And yet you have all this support that has to physically occupy a larger space. How do you get it into play? How do you do it? You know, I mean, that's what I think some of the best commanders are masters at that, at coordinating all that. And I, and I just don't know that Walker is in that category. You know, for instance, what I think about, just, just me thinking all these years later, you know, if you're not using those uh, anti-aircraft battalions, those quad 50s, you're really completely down on the job in this point because that to me is your most powerful weapon for any night crossing that kind of direct quad 50 support that you've got is extraordinarily devastating to any german who hopes to fire back at you on the on the other side in those holes we're talking about the machine gun posts you mentioned you know whatever it be the heavier bunkers okay that's a different animal but it's going to be anyway but the quad 50s are what are going to get you across that river probably why aren't they in play to a better extent? To me, and, and of course, any division like Walker's has an organic anti-aircraft battalion that is equipped with a lot of this kind of stuff. So it's not just a matter of coordinating with units outside your division. Not just that. You know, these are part of your command too. Why aren't they there? And the other thing is you've got you've got two really good build-up points because you've got Monte Trocchio, which runs north to south, which is in the, in the southern bit of Monte Trocchio is is just opposite where the 141st, so the northern crossing point of the Rapido, takes place. So you could hide a whole load of tanks and stuff, Sherman tanks in there overnight the previous night, and they could be just lying up there and then move out at night and, and get into position and not kind of hold down position along the kind of railway line or, or right up by the river, for that matter, um, you know, in different parts of the river and, and, and just hold down there. And ditto on the other side. On the other side, you've got Monte Porchia, which is, you know, these two places which are just absolutely tailor-made it's, it's like having a whopping great wall behind which you can hide in in the run-up to the to the attack so it's, it's not like they're kind of sort of advancing over four miles of kind of sort of open river plain or anything you know they've, they've actually got some some geographical help here that could really make a massive difference so the fact that those sherman tanks from first armored from combat command b are still back at kind of mignano is just it's disgraceful we need to take a quick break we'll be back in a second I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. 
Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We're talking about the Rapido. We talked about this before, about this strategic imperative to push on all the time. It's pushing people into doing things. I mean, you know, you, you could argue, had he had another week, would he have been able to get this organised properly? Would he have, would the right council have arrived at the right moment? You know, you know what I mean? That this endless strategic imperative to, to keep pushing and pushing and pushing means that, you you know, you're deploying an underpowered division to try and... Yeah, that is definitely it. true. There's no getting away from that. There isn't. And, and you know, we've, we've talked about this before. This is this is the kind of the key problem of Italy, that you've just got too many... You've got the tyranny of overlord overlooking the whole thing. Yeah, and, yeah. And sort of pushing, forming, you know, forcing the pace. <coughs> I mean, you know, th th this sort of get on with it and get to Rome as quickly as possible, do Anzio, that's coming from kind of Churchill and the combined chiefs of staff, which is then coming down to you know, to Jumbo Wilson, who's the new Supreme Allied Commander, which is then coming down to Alexander as Army Group Commander, which is then coming down to, to Mark Clark. But I mean, you know, Mark Clark by this time, his his fifth army is absolutely enormous, you know, because it's got most of Eighth Army in it as well, attached to it. Ten Corps is has also got you know, it's now got three divisions in it. Um on top of that you've got first British division attached to six US six corps. So that's four British divisions which are now operating in Fifth Army. Plus you've got the whole French Expeditionary Corps. Plus you've got outsized kind of corps for for um for for two corps and for six corps. So it's a huge force. I mean, it's absolutely monstrous. Well, and the other side's dealing with the same pressures. The Germans are too of relentless, constant combat and you know of operations. Right? I mean, both sides are dealing with it. This imperative to to fight now. So when we pull, you know, when the Allies pull a, a division out of the line, it's kind of for a month at least. When the Germans pull a division out of the line, it's four days. It's four and, days. You know, the funny thing is that used to be lauded. 
by World War II historians. Uh, the Germans had this great replacement system where they would keep the divisions, uh, they would swap out units or whatever. They were destroying them. Um, you know, in the U.S. Uh, Army replacement system, so heartless with individuals being fed into units and all that. And uh, I would say, I would step back from that and say, I think that the, that the U.S., was more efficient in, in that respect 100%. and probably worked much better. Oh, my God. Um, and then in the end, it was maybe more humane because it did minimize the losses, even though it was tough to go there as an individual. Ideally, it's almost always better to, to go to the front line with your unit you've trained with or whatever, but this isn't possible during a world war. The, the Army surveys revealed that two-thirds of uh, infantrymen in the Italian theater had not gone overseas with their unit. So... The losses are such that you're going to have to bring new people in. What the ger- the German answer to this is simply leave them into the line until they get destroyed, take them out the line, reconstitute them, mainly with Eastern Europeans or whatever. 17-year-olds. Um, and, yeah, or 17-year-olds, and then throw them back in to the wolves. I mean, I, I don't see a lot of merit in that relative to the, the U.S. system <laughs> in that sense. You know what I mean? Oh, my God. It's, so, it's absolutely but, insane. It's insane. So there's this battalion commander in the 44 Falken Deutschmeister Division. Okay, check this out. So his his regiment, the 134th Infantry Regiment, is seconded to the 29th Panzer Grenadier. But his battalion is so wiped out that he then gets a company of the Hermann Goering Division attached to him to help bolster his number. So you've got a regiment from a different division now being given extra troops from another division to help the 29th Panzer Grenadier Division. So, so it's like three steps down. I mean, it's just mad. Anyway, they get they get pulled out on the 14th of, of January. On the 16th of January, my battalion commander is then sort of called for a kind of sort of, you know, a, a, a divisional meeting where they sort of talk about stuff and, and, and warn them that they're going to have to go back up into the line in, in kind of, you know, two days' time. And... Says, you know, there's orders from on high, you know, we've got to re-educate everyone. You know, the, the, these young guys that are coming through, they don't believe in final victory. You know, you know, we've got to, we've got to re-educate them. And, and you, know, the re, you know, that's why they're not, and because they don't believe in final victory and because they're not Nazi enough, that's why they're not fighting hard enough. The reason they're not fighting hard enough is because they're not trained and because they're 17. Right, exactly. It's very interesting though, isn't it? Because this is, this is often the sort of, Germans are really good. They're painted as they're really good at organizing new divisions. They're really good at stopgap forces. They're really good at that. Their command structures are brilliant, are brilliantly open to this flexible. They can spin a new army round on a dime organizationally and, and throw one up. And you kind of think, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> but what do these armies consist of? And also that what that tells you is that there's a there's a whole bunch of people at the top who aren't involved in the actual sharp end. Who, who are able to run these run these sort of virtual offices that then they plug formations into, which after all is why you end up with Hitler with a map with formations on that have names and flags on on, on a map of Berlin, but there aren't any actual bloody people. You know that, that you, this is this is how he can end up. Yeah, Steiner's attack. Exactly, where Steiner? Exactly. This is how he can end up saying "Wo is Steiner?" because they've been selling him that these things are divisions. And he's been reading them on papers divisions. And Jim, last year when you were talking about the Savage Storm, you were saying, what are divisions on paper? What do they actually constitute? Are they closer in size to one another or not? You know, if you're counting divisions, you get one picture. But then when you look at what they actually are made up of, you get something quite different. And once you actually burrow down into what they're constituted, 
by. And yes, the German, the German, I mean, it's, it's the, you know, we've talked about this before. You know, the idea of the Kampfgruppe shows a sort of amazing organisational flexibility. It also demonstrates you're in the shit. Yeah, yeah. You would, you wouldn't, or you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have to be doing this. I guess, you know. Well, well, my, my battalion commander, when he goes up to this meeting on the 16th, you know, th- they get warned that uh, the two officers have just been shot for being drunk in front of their men. And so Zelda says, when do you actually not get shot? <laughs> and kind of, you know, and everyone laughs. <laughs> I love that line. That's when really do you funny. not get shot, you know? <laughs> just kind of curious. And anyway, so, so the kind of regimental commander pats him on the back and says, says look, you know, I know you've had a tough time, but, you know, we're going to make sure that when you go up the line in a, in, in a couple of days' time, you, you get a kind of, you know, a quiet section. And he just goes... Yeah, right, because there are quiet sections on this front. <laughs> yeah, all everywhere. I mean, it's <laughs> nothing happening here. Don't worry. So fascinating how you mentioned that they're saying, oh, these, these new guys are coming in. They're, they're not, they don't believe in final victory. They're not properly viewed with the national socialist spirit. That's so Hitlerian. I mean, that has to have come down from him because it's exactly what he thinks about this whole war. If you just believe enough in the indomitable will of national socialism, and then you will win somehow. It's just so crazy. I mean, it's yeah. absolutely bonkers. It's absolutely bonkers. Uh, but the amazing thing is, is, is Kesselring does send it. So, so von Sanger goes up to where, where, where the British attack on the Garriana, which is on the sort of south of the, uh, of the line, right by the Tyrrhenian Sea, so on the western, western coast. And he goes up to see um, Seinitz, who's the um, commander of the 94th Infantry Division. And he looks out from the top of the ridgeline down over the Garriano Plain and, and realises that, 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 that it's split and there's a or centre valley which goes up and joins the Leary Valley to the north and that, you know, if, if the British can get onto this high ground, then they could potentially be in massive trouble. So he, he, he thinks the only way to do this is to say to, say to Kesselring, who likes defending for every kind of last yard and absolutely adheres to the kind of Hitler missive, is if you don't massively reinforce this area right now, we're going to lose, and and the lyric, you know, we won't be able to hold this line any longer. So he rings them up, and Castro goes, "Absolutely, we must reinforce immediately. This is the most decisive moment of the whole Battle of Italy," and constantly sends all his all his reserves down to this point. So the 29th Panzer, the, which has only just been pulled out of the line, 90th, which has got completely destroyed at Ortona, and not happy with that, he then also sends the first. Fauschenjäger Corps, which at the time had been north of Rome, he now sends that south as well to the Gariano. They see this is absolutely the number one threat. Which means when the Allies land at Anzio, there really is nothing there. Which means we get exactly what we want, and yet we don't get anything out of Anzio. So I would argue that there's a couple of instances here where people are not, you know, decision makers are not necessarily making the right decisions on the Allied perspective. But Jim, we, we, we were talking about this the other day amongst ourselves, is that so much of the intelligence story of the Second World War is a combination of wishful thinking, guesswork, and then uh, basically cold cup of coffee in the face that in fact everything you thought up to this point is a load of nonsense. And that, you know, we, because after all, John, I don't, uh, you know, a, a, thing that's, a thing that's happened in this country in the last couple of decades is we've we've taken on board the ultra story culturally, not in terms of history, but the ultra story has been taken on board, kind of as this sort of reassurance that the the British had, you know, we through our amazing brains and through a combination of sort of eccentrics and 
misunderstood geniuses, pipe smoking boffins, you know, and a series of, you know, innovations that led to the invention of the modern world. So, you know, the computer, blah, blah, blah. Because we cracked the ultra, the enigma thing, we knew everything. We knew, and our intelligence proceeds in a kind of, in this sort of platonic ideal of, of how intelligence works. We know everything. We've got it all worked out. And so when there are intelligence errors, it's like, how on earth did that happen? I thought we knew everything. Whereas in fact, again and again and again, you see that so much, you know, you look at the decision to invade Italy, Avalanche, the decision when to go, the simple timing on, on the assessment of what the Germans might do in the event of an Italian capitulation, it's all wishful thinking and guesswork. With a smattering of, well, we know that, that, you know, we know where these units are or we know we've heard that these units might be in the neighbourhood, but we don't know what they constitute. And which which flings us back to the thing we were just talking about now, German paper formations or embryonic formations, you know, creating new armies, creating new visions, divisions from scrap. Intelligence briefing, it says that nine and ten Panzer SS might be in the neighbourhood. That could mean that could literally mean anything. That could mean a headquarters staff or it could mean that there are armoured vehicles it might not or, or the Hermann Goering division when it's reconstituted to be sent to Sicily what is it even it's a it's it's a letterhead at best isn't it and yet British intelligence is reading those letterheads often enough in the communication doesn't know what you know some of these I mean we you know when you look when you compare it to the British effort cascade to create these phantom armies and you know create this picture of all these armies moving around in the Mediterranean and the stuff that's at the British and Americans disposal the Germans is kind of doing that by accident because much more but, haphazardly, but yeah. much more because because their formations do they exist? Do they not? Are they are they hollowed out? You know, they've been withdrawn as you as you say, they've been winnowed away to nothing, withdrawn and being reconstituted. So what are they even? So the sort of the Germans by accident creating this intelligence picture that you can you know wetting your finger and holding it to the breeze as much if you're the Allies, re- even reading the Ultra. That after all, we we reassure ourselves in this country, you know. Clever old British brains, you know, knew what Hitler was having for breakfast. Well, yeah, maybe, but no, he didn't. And I think this is this is part of this picture, isn't it? Because if, 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 if as you say, Jim, basically the moment for Anzio is the right moment and the Germans have sent everyone in the wrong direction and yet you don't make it pay off. Anyway, just all these conversations we've had lately that, are kind of, that have kind of tangled themselves together into a way of thinking about this, I think is quite interesting. Well, and it shows that every, a lot of things have to go right because yeah, yeah. even if we have Ultra, we're getting fragments of what they're communicating. They don't even know what's going on half the time, too. So how are we going to? And uh, so how are we going to take that actionable intelligence and utilize it with commanders in the field? So here we get a break, and uh, the Germans have moved their troops away, conveniently away from our Anzio landing area, and we still don't pull it off. Not because people are idiots or something, because this is freaking hard to do to to line up all those ducks in the right rows, to take the uh, to get the intel, to figure it out the right way, to collect it together, to get it, make it actionable, to keep operational security too. By the way, because of course, there's plenty of times when we can feed sometimes information to operational commanders, but we're worried. Oh, maybe the Germans are going to figure out that we're cracking their codes. Is this worth it? You know, so we got that element too. Uh, so how's this going to get to me as a division or a battalion commander in a useful way? There aren't that many times in the war when this happens, honestly. I mean, Carantan, maybe? Um, <laughs> I think in a in a ground combat operational sense, for sure. Uh, maybe in the Battle of the Atlantic, if we looked at it differently that way, maybe differently. Maybe that maybe 
there's the value, perhaps more. But we also, we don't quite understand through Ultra Hitler's intentions a lot of times. Look at the bulge again. And of course, obviously, they've gone dark on a lot of their communications by then too. But yeah, I mean, so in that sense, maybe Ultra is overcooked from a ground perspective. Yes. Well, yes. I mean, you know, inevitably I've been, for, for my book, I've been looking at the orders the enemy um, presence assessments in in the orders for um, the British bit of Market Garden, first parachute brigade. There is no mention of any enemy formations at all. That that, that just the enemy. There there's some enemy, and we you know expect some of them to show up perhaps. And then in the in the battalion orders, it says nine ten Panzer SS divisions probably in the area, but we don't know that they're, they're refitting round here. Kind of maybe, but the received wisdom within the battalion is that they were destroyed in. Fillets. So, but they are mentioned in the battalion level orders. Their presence is, but where are they going to be? We don't know. Or what state of them? We don't know. But we, we don't know anything. We don't. we don't know anything because we can't really know. Because there's no way that these things are, these are unknown, unknown knowns, aren't they? In that regard, you know, they're there, but you don't know what they are. I mean, they, well, Alan, haven't you noticed too, like the closer you get to the ground, to the ground combat soldier, like you said, battalion level or whatever, the more opaque those kind of intel matters tend to be. You know, enemy capability in this sector is X, Y, and Z. But we don't know for sure. I mean, it, that's, you, can, you can really sympathize with a lot of these intel officers who are operating on, you know, half information. Imagine if we had to write books that way. Sometimes we do, I guess, but largely not. I mean, it, it would be very frustrating. So you can then see why there's such cynicism for the soldiers they're like, oh, they bollocks this up again. They don't know what the hell's going on. You know, especially when, when the Red Devils get to the uh, to RNM and Osterbeck. It's like, oh, how could they not know these guys are here. units are here, right? It's like, I'm going to Bletchley Park on Friday. So cause I've got a show nearby, so I'm popping in. And I'm going to have that usual thing. I've said this, I've said this to, to Jim before, John, that what happens is someone explains to me how the Enigma machine works, and then they explain how you decipher it. And for about half an hour, I hold that in my head. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, then gone. <laughs> and then by by tea time in the evening it, it's just gone and um you and me you know, both. <laughs> if, you, if you ask me if you ask me immediately straight after i've had it explained to me i'll 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 be able to do it and then and then uh, two hours later i've degenerated into yeah hitler's birthday or something you know in the <laughs> in the they type in hitler's birthday oh i don't feel as badly now because i'm the exact same way yeah i don't know if i even ever understand it but yeah i think you're ahead of me on that maybe but Absolutely. It's imponderable. So Walker, is Walker's fatalism about this? Is he being, he's being, in one way, he's sort of being realistic, isn't he? He's saying, this is, we're, 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 this is all difficult. We don't know, you know, in the end, they, they can tell me what the enemy presence is, but who knows, you know. It, it, to, to circle back round to Walker, though, because. Yeah, okay, the point, the point here is, yes, it's difficult. It's difficult. It's a nightmare. It's gonna it's gonna cost a lot of blood. No one is denying that. Every, everyone's got their eyes wide open. But it is not impossible. That's the problem. You don't go into a battle thinking the battle you're about to undertake is impossible. That's a really really bad attitude to have. And if you do think that, you should say it and you should make it absolutely clear. And you should bug out and you say, well, I'm not going to do it. Uh, and and you you get sacked and someone else comes in. What are his staff saying? Are they going, yeah, you're right, boss? Or are the staff going, well, you know. Well, he says, I didn't let on my kind of, you know, my true feelings about all this. 
But but you know, you telling me that he didn't kind of let on to it. He wasn't sighing a lot, and and he wasn't kind of sort of scratching his nuts a lot. I mean, of course he was. I mean, of course they picked up the vibes. But but he's not doing all that he could to make give it the best possible chance because he's not thinking about those quad fifties. He's not thinking about the tanks. He's not thinking about using all the assets he's got. He's just not. And he's not thinking about, okay, let's really think sensibly about where we cross. You know, 143rd crossing place. Okay, fine. Absolutely no problem with that at all. 141st is a bonkers place. Oh, no way. I mean, you know, you look at the maps, you look at the situation, you look at what's going on and you look at where they're crossing and you think, why are you doing this? So Walker's fate having messed this up is what? Is he fired? No, he cracks on. Um, everyone sort of pats him on the back and goes, "You did your best job." And um, you know, and and he has a kind of sort of a sort of Calvary moment because uh, later on, he it's the thirty six Texans that find the gap in the in the Caesar line that enables them to fold up Rome, and it, it is the Texans that are responsible for getting Mark Clark out of the out of the doo doo for turning and. and pushing up through the Auburn Hills. Right. So he gets his he gets his happy ending. But if we look at this all these years later and we compare it to the hundred other successful river crossings we have before and after this, maybe that's the difference point. Walker, not to blame it all on him. I don't necessarily want to do that, but maybe there is some, maybe that's what's different. You have a commander who doesn't quite believe in this and is making decisions perhaps accordingly. But I think even whether he does or not, He's not using all his supporting elements, all of his assets he could use that perhaps could have made a better difference there. I mean, I think in a way, maybe that's the most meaningful aspect of this, that we could compare it with other river crossings. And maybe if the, if he has a failing, because you can understand why he's worried about it, of course, but if he has a failing, maybe that's it as much as anything. Jim, when were you last there? Um, in April. Standing there, can you see it? It's very difficult because, because the Germans cleared all the kind of vegetation, so they had clear fields of fire and stuff so it would have been absolutely sort of bare as anything um but but what what, what doesn't change is the lie of the land um so trees grow up and buildings go up and all the rest of it but but the kind of shape of the contours is exactly as it is and and it's not impossible it's a tough nut but it's not impossible in a country of tough nuts is yeah, the thing. like anzio it's a tough nut but the albano hills are there yeah. you know so there there are way there are workarounds as we would now say i guess right i mean and, and that's why we laud some commanders and not others. I think a more realistic scenario is if he'd got all his assets, is I think they could have got across the river. They could have got through the main line of resistance. I think they would have struggled to exploit because I don't think they had enough follow-up forces. You know, the, the forces are all spread out. I mean, could they have brought the Red Bulls down very quickly? Maybe. But, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that they had the follow-up forces, even if they had made a, made a breakthrough. Yeah, because they're going to Anzio. But the flip side of that is if you then land at Anzio and you've got a breakthrough on the Leary Valley... Would that then have made Castlering pull back? Now, I'm I'm guessing not because Castlering doesn't retreat. I mean, that's not what he does. <laughs> you know, and and he's promised to Hitler that he wouldn't. So I'm I'm not sure that it would have worked. But I, you know, how else do you break the deadlock when everyone's kind of saying you've got to do so and you've got to kind of you know the clock is ticking and you've got you've got to get to Rome quickly. Well, Jim, I'm glad we dealt with the thing that no one knows about. Or the problems that the self pity in that is really no one knows the problems I'm facing and isn't great, is it? And the congressional the investigation after the war found Clark not guilty, right? Or that's not the 
the, the terms in which it was framed. Oh, no, completely. Yeah, just yeah. Threw, threw it out immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Clark asked permission from Eisenhower to go back to Washington to defend himself and, and, and or Marshall, I can't remember one of them, and, and they just said, oh, don't even bother. Well, but we've bothered. That's the main thing. Um, which is after all the that's after all the point of this podcast. Um, <laughs> doesn't sound like it. No, it doesn't sound like it. Um, <laughs> fantastic. Well, thanks, Jim. That was, that was that was fascinating. Thanks, John. Um, thanks everybody for listening. We will see you all again very soon. We hope you've enjoyed Jim un- unloading on the unfortunate Fred Walker. <laughs> 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 thanks everybody. Bye bye. See you. Cheerio.